This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today here as we kick off the last week for the month of June in 2022. Of course, later on this week, we'll be hearing from the USDA a couple of closely watched reports coming out on Thursday. We'll have the final acreage report from USDA on what actually they believe went into the ground earlier this year. And of course, we'll get the quarterly grain stocks. The markets will be digesting or anticipating those numbers here all week could provide some volatility. We'll talk about how those might impact the market and how last Friday's cattle on feed report is moving the markets with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services in just a second. Then we're going to talk with John Baranek of DTN Weather about what could be coming down up in the week ahead. And then Jackie Fatka of Farm Progress will be joining us. Lots of activity happening in Washington, D.C. with regard to ag policy. At least that was the case last week. Then, of course, Friday, we saw the big Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. I'm going to ask Jackie, how does that going to impact the possibility of this other legislation making it across the finish line here before the elections? But let's talk cattle. We see that cattle market really rocking and rolling today. Live cattle up, well, just shy of a buck. Feeder cattle up $2 plus today. Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. Is today's move in the livestock sector because of the cattle on feed report or is it because of the sell-off we're seeing today in corn? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, live cattle certainly higher, I think, off the on-feed report showing placements down 2%. Not only is that a supportive number, but the breakdown on the placements indicated that placements of heavyweight animals was down 6%. So I think that is a supportive feature to the August and the October live cattle contract. Uh, also, Mike, uh, the, the report showed that the industry marketed more cattle than what we placed during the month of May. So actual uh, on-feed inventory coming down, although still holding at 101% of a year ago. Uh, Feeders uh, sharply higher. I think, again, combination of sharply uh, lower corn market and the supportive feature of the uh, cattle on-feed report. You know, even though we saw total cattle on feed come down month over month, Dennis, I was still shocked at just the raw number of cattle we have on feed, largest for June 1st since the the series began recording, correct? Yeah, it's a record large number. That's a fact. Uh, And again, I think it's it's due to the fact that large numbers of cattle have been uh, run off of that dry pasture and, and what was at the time dry wheat pasture which, of course, is now uh, moving into harvest activity. But uh, the market has seen a rash of placements and bunching up cattle on feed. And again, I think, Mike, uh, the the important thing is, uh, remember, the futures markets are always looking forward. And looking forward, we envision a a lower placement rate probably for the rest of the year. And these numbers are going to change rather drastically. They are, Dennis, and you've got that lower placement expected, but marketing's, as you mentioned, continuing to stay strong, up 2% month over month. Is that where you anticipated marketing's to be for this last series? Yeah, I I did. I was hoping they might even be up 3%, but I think we had one fewer weekday and one more Saturday in uh, in the month of May this year versus last year, so it gets a little bit confusing, but the key or the bottom line is we do believe that feedlots are current, weights are declining, grading of uh, prime choice cattle is declining, uh, although it's rather confusing, Mike, because we've got this huge spread between the price of steers in the southern plains and the price of cattle in the northern region. And what's driving that? Is this we've seen a lot more cattle come on the market in the south? Is that drought has intensified, Dennis, or is there another factor at play? Well, it's 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 pretty confusing. Uh, there, there's a large number of cattle on feed in Texas reported uh, as in the date of Friday, uh, 103% of a year ago. It seems like uh, Texas is a, sort of the problem child, so to speak. Also, 
cattle are grading about 10% less uh, choice and prime uh, than the cattle in Kansas and in Nebraska are grading. So that's what, that's a couple of contributing factors there. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the actual spread is, is record wide and, and somewhat confusing for those in the industry, including myself. All right. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that as that weird, confusing situation develops. Dennis, I want to mention, I want to look out. You mentioned the futures market looks at the futures. How are consumers holding up? What can we tell from, from wholesale box beef values? Well, the beef is is topped out, but it's not moving sharply lower. So we, we believe that the, uh, the wholesale beef complex is holding together rather well. Also keep in mind there's plenty of margin room. In other words, packers are still operating at very high profitable margins, historically very high, uh, and in some cases perhaps as much as $200 a head. So there's a lot of room there uh, for the packers in a uh, in a current feedlot situation to pay up for animals, to compete for the animals, yet still turn uh, and process beef cattle at a profitable level. I know it's early in the week, Dennis. We haven't seen any cash trade develop that I have noticed as of yet, but do you figure live bids this week are going to be a little higher than they were last week on the cash side? I would think so, but again, I, I thought that should be the case last week, and then we traded lower in the Southern Plains. So it's a little confusing right now, and I guess I'll have to see it to believe it. But I, I, I would expect a, a firm to higher cash trade based upon everything that I'm hearing. And, and that factors in even the, the stability in the stock market of recent. Of course, recession and consumer confidence, wow, it all comes into play. And, and it's, a, it's a very complicated situation right now. It is, and we're seeing these complications play out across all markets. Dennis, while we've got you, last week we saw incredible volatility in the hog market with dollar moves, I think, at least nearly every day. What happened, and what does that kind of volatility tell you about a market? Well, hogs, in my opinion, are topping out. That is, the summer hog market's topping out because we're, we're past the good demand time frame. In other words, I think the pork demand for the 4th of July is all finished up now. Uh, while hog numbers are down, I don't think they're down as much as expected. And I think uh, the pork stocks, as far as frozen stocks, are fully adequate. And I think you're going to run into a situation where the, the hog market cools off a bit uh, into the end of summer. And that's primarily because exports, pork exports, are extremely lousy and they have been for several months. Dennis, a cool off in the lean hog market. Are we dropping from $100 here in the August down to the 80s, or could we go sub $80 here by the end of summer, early fall? I would not expect that that large of a drop or decline. So no, I, while I'm negative, I'm not uh, overly negative. Uh, we are seeing pig prices in China uh, moving higher China is the big dog. Production in China exceeds the combined production of the U.S., Canada, Germany, France, and Russia, and Brazil. Jeez. They, their but production exceeds all of those countries combined. They're a big producer, folks. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American, as well as folks around the world. Ag Census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, Visit NAST 
www.usda.gov backslash ag census. Thank you. When it comes to protecting your investment in fuel and diesel-powered equipment, Diesel X Gold from FS clearly beats other diesel fuels. New detergents disperse contaminants to prevent sludge that plugs filters and causes unexpected downtime. And now, better moisture handling chemistry helps ensure your fuel stays dry, reducing microbial growth and fuel line freeze-ups. So when you're deciding what fuel to use, choose Diesel X Gold, absolutely the best fuel to power and protect your diesel equipment. Contact your local FS Energy Specialist today or visit GoFurtherWithFS.com. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Across the country, farmers have been pretty successful at getting their crops in the ground here so far this year. And those crops have been responding to the heat that we have seen across the country lately. Curious about what could be coming in the week ahead. Joining us now to discuss that is John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Mike. Appreciate it. Let's talk about temperature to start off the bat here, John, what do you see coming? Are we going to get another heat dome across the central part of the U.S. this week? We are safe from that for the well, for most areas for most of the time. I'll say that uh, we're definitely not, you know, expecting anything really uh, hot and oppressive here um, for many areas this week. We'll be much on the cooler side of normal. Uh, for a lot of areas, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get hot in a little part of the section, a uh, little part of the country here um, in the middle of the week. There is a front that'll be moving through uh, around Thursday or Friday, just ahead of that, and kind of the central plains up into the upper Midwest. We'll get a, a, a day or two of temperatures um, close to 100 degrees in South Dakota uh, and some 90s elsewhere. But other than that, I mean, that's going to be just kind of a brief one-time little deal. Uh, everybody else should be more on the mild side. So, the oppressive continued heat and humidity um, not really going to be a factor this week. Well, that'll be good news, I'm sure, for a lot of folks who need to be working outside. Last week's humidity was something else, John, at least here in the central part of the Corn Belt. I'm curious if we're seeing this cool off, this milder weather across the week, are we going to have less of a severe weather threat, broadly speaking, this week? For this week, yes. Yeah, without all the heat and humidity uh, for these couple of systems we're, we're looking at here this week, we're not really expecting a whole lot in terms of severe weather. Could be a, a couple of spots here or there, but nothing major, nothing widespread um, or really impactful this week, I don't think. All right, John. Well, looking in the immediate uh, future here, I pulled up some of the forecast maps and I saw that the four corner region down there in the desert southwest has is at the center spot for some thunderstorm risk today. Any possibility that our friends down there in the southwest could get some moisture and help reduce some of that fire risk? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting and I'll, I don't think a lot of people know about it, but, you know, you always hear about kind of the monsoon in Asia 
or sometimes even in Africa, but there's actually one here in North America as well, and that's out in the, in the Southwest. They get uh, uh, moisture that kind of comes in from the Pacific Ocean um, during the summertime. It usually doesn't start until July, though. But this year it started kind of uh, a little bit early here in, in, in kind of mid-June, and uh, that monsoon is just going to be continued to, to, to ramp up here, not just this week, but it looks like it's going to be pretty active all the way through the summer. So, you know, that area of the country has seen just incredible drought for the longest time. I think the last time they weren't in drought was 2019. So it's been, you know, a good three years or so of just continued drought. Um, and, you know, they've had it kind of eaten away at times just to, to have it return uh, when the monsoon goes away. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the folks, they, there, there are some farmers out there, and we, we don't think about it too much, but they use uh, irrigation and snowmelt from the mountains to do it. And, um, you know, water levels on the Colorado River, which, you know, uh, feed a lot of that and actually feeds a lot of, of, of water to Southern California as well. Um, they just have had so many restrictions on the, on the lake levels around Lake Mead in, in uh, Nevada. Uh, there's been some really interesting stories about how those lake levels have been really low. But this uh, monsoon is going to be important for that. So uh, we've seen some, some good showers so far. It looks like we're going to see that throughout the rest of the summer as well. And Next week is going to be part of that. When this monsoon season kicks off a little bit early and we see that moisture building up into the southwest, John, do those systems end up working their way into the central part of the U.S.? I mean, could they touch the southern plains, Oklahoma, Texas panhandle and move eastward or do they just kind of spin around in the southwest? Yeah, you, they, they can. And uh, they're kind of aided sometimes by, um, well, it's hard to describe, but some of the, 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 the jet stream kind of uh, will we'll force some of those thunderstorms to move out into the plains a bit. We're actually seeing that today. Uh, we've got some pretty decent showers right now in southeast Colorado, getting into the, the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles. Um, but, you know, it's nothing overly, overly helpful. I mean, they're still in drought. But for the most part, a lot of that just stays there in the mountains, and the Rockies will just eat up all the moisture that comes up uh, from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's, it's kind of a rare occurrence to have that just kind of drift out into the, the plains, but it does happen, and it looks like it's happening today. All right. All right. Well, some good moisture levels there, or some more moisture falling, at least for our friends there in the Southern Plains. John, I want to go to the other side of the country, looking at the southeast and up the east coast. It looks like we're expecting some weather there today, and I'm curious, tropical areas, anything starting to heat up down there in the Gulf or the Atlantic we should be aware of? Yeah, so they've got the front that went through the, the Corn Belt and Northern Plains here over the weekend is now starting to get through them. So they'll have some showers and thunderstorms moving through. Um, there's been a lot of showers kind of just popping up in the heat and humidity down there in the southeast anyway, but those are very, like, very pop-up, very isolated and localized. Uh, so they've had some drought issues down there in the southeast. And uh, um, luckily for them, you know, the front that kind of gets to them here today is just going to stall there. So they're going to get, you know, pretty much daily showers and thunderstorms here all week going into next week as well. Uh, in terms of the tropical uh, threat there, it's kind of interesting. Last week we talked about how there's just too much shear in the, in the Gulf of Mexico to really um, you know, allow for any of this to pop up. Well, there's been a little bit of a weak spot and it kind of happens to, to be just in the area where we've got some thunderstorms. So south of Louisiana over the Gulf of Mexico, there's been some clusters of thunderstorms that have popped up. Uh, the National Hurricane Center is kind of watching that as it drifts westward could become tropical before it uh, hits the Texas coastline, uh, which looks like it's going to happen on Thursday or so. It's got a little bit of time there for that to happen. Regardless of whether or not it actually becomes tropical or not, it looks like we're going to get some heavier rain here along the Texas coastline. And just depending on where this little little low-pressure center tracks, uh, it could be up through eastern Texas and into Oklahoma, uh, or it could just kind of meander through southern Texas. So either way, it looks like some somebody around here is going to get some uh, decent rain. Whether or not it's called tropical or not is uh, kind of questionable at this point. Absolutely. And I would imagine for those folks in South Texas that are in those D3, D4 categories of drought, don't care whether or not you call that rain tropical, just so long as it falls. John, looking at the drought monitor right now, of course, we've seen substantial improvement in the eastern Corn Belt here from spring till now, but we're starting to get some patches redevelop. Iowa's got some troublesome drought pockets, Illinois, parts of Indiana. Of course, this was last week. Did this system over the weekend produce enough rainfall to create any improvement in drought categories? You're right. And this is a very important thing to notice right now is that uh, drought has started to increase here across the Corn Belt. 
Um, it's only been labeled B0 or their abnormally dry category. But, you know, it's the effects have really started popping up. I know that we, in my area in Minnesota, we just got this B0. But if I drive around, um, I'm looking at corn and I'm looking at pineapple leaves all over the place. So we, we really need it here. Uh, some sections over the weekend did get some pretty decent rain across eastern Iowa and through uh, large chunks of Illinois did as well. Um, there is actually a little spot in east central Illinois that is in that D1 drought that just popped up um, on last week's drought monitor. They got a little bit of rain, but not enough, I don't think, to, to pull them out of it. We're going to need some more. We're going to need some more, John. Do you see any more on the horizon? You touched on the mild week. We're not going to have a lot of thunderstorm risk. I assume that means just not a lot of rainfall opportunity for the central Corn Belt. Yes and no. I mean, we, we are going to get a, a cold front to kind of drop down from Canada here uh, tomorrow. It's going to somewhat stall across the middle of the Corn Belt. Uh, we'll get a system to kind of form along that. Most of that moves through Canada, so uh, a lot of uh, the U.S. doesn't get in on, on too much of the precipitation. But that front's going to kind of stick around through the Corn Belt going all the way through the weekend. So there are going to be some showers in, in some spots. Uh, models kind of overdo this a lot of times. And uh, if you look at rainfall maps uh, over the week, it might look like there's a lot of the country that gets some pretty good rainfall. These end up being pretty streaky with cold fronts. So um, I, w I would assume that a lot more areas get missed than get hit, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, if you're listening, you're one of the ones that gets hit. John, watching that drought pop up, that dryness, of course, would you expect that here in the early summer? Is this indicative of perhaps more heat and dryness coming down the line? Yeah, I think you're right. And that's something I was concerned about more for July than now. But, you know, we just had so much heat last week and, and really the week prior to that, you know, this, uh, you may call it flash drought. It just started popping up here across the Corn Belt. We were kind of concerned about that happening kind of later this summer, but it's already started to occur. So, uh, with the hotter and drier forecast we are anticipating across much of the Corn Belt, really across much of the country, um, you know, I think this is going to be something to watch going forward, definitely. Always something to watch on the skies in the summer for the growing season. Our thanks to John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, always appreciate your insight. And always good to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And folks, stick around. We'll be talking to Jackie Fatka, policy editor of Farm Futures Magazine, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, grains did start mostly higher this morning, but we are quickly moving to the downside led by corn here, especially new crop corn. After we saw over the weekend, we got some good rains throughout parts of the central corn belt and northward, and that's going to be a weight on these markets here to start the week. Now, chances look lighter this week with temps moving back higher going forward, but those key 6- to 10-day forecasts continue to run wet at this point, and that's keeping that carrot hanging out there for the bears into early July. 
Now, fundamentally, the trades looking forward to this Thursday's USDA acreage and stocks report to wrap up the month of June. A set of reports that often provides some fireworks to the market ahead of the long holiday weekend. A bullish report across the board sent the market skyrocketing last year when acreage gains failed to materialize. Little change is expected this year with around half a million acres seen shifting from soybeans to corn. Now, the Midwest planting season was slow to start, but better late conditions and massive price incentives were seen driving farmers to plant corn until the very last day. It would still be the lowest June corn acreage figure since 2018 and the highest soybean acreage on record for either the June acreage report or an overall final number if it's realized. Let's take a look at some of the numbers. Again, we're moving to the downside here in grains. July corn down 19, 731 and a quarter. December corn down 29 and a quarter, 644 and three quarters. Chicago wheat July down 11 and a half, 912 and a quarter. July KC wheat down 15, 977 and a half. July spring wheat down 13 and a half, 1057 and a quarter. July soybeans down a quarter penny, 1610 and a half. November down four and a quarter at 1420. Bean meal and bean oil are now mixed. Live cattle for June up 27, 135.62. August up 262. And feeder cattle at 175.12. And July lean hogs up 27, 111.20. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to talk policy right now. Things have been moving quickly, really relatively quickly for policy discussion standpoint in Washington, D.C. on these ag issues. And last week, we saw both the House and the Senate make some more moves to bring these things closer to law. Joining me to discuss those is Jackie Fatka. She's the policy editor at Farm Progress. Jackie, ag spending appropriations approved by the House last week. What happened? Yeah, so the House is working on a lot of their individual uh, spending bills. Uh, the Ag FDA bill came up. Um, it was one of six spending bills that advanced um, for possible floor action here in July. So they're they are you know worked out of subcommittee the week prior, and then it, it came up in the uh, full appropriations committee uh, last week, and it it it. It was approved. Um, you know, there's obviously it's not too hard to get some of these approved out of committee. It's when the floor comes up and when you have the control, then, you know, the House is easier to do that. But it did have a, a total increase of about two billion or an eight point three percent increase over the previous year, 2022 spending levels. Um, some more money there for some of the conservation things that 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 they are wanting to do some more technical assistance and some of that money to help with new conservation practices. You know, we have a lot of discussion about climate, climate and climate impact. And so they're trying to have some more money on that. Um, also some more money for APHIS and, and being able to uh, help with some of the disease issues that we got have going on, animal health surveillance, those types of issues. Um, you know, so nothing that was super huge in this, uh, you know, there's more money for rural broadband and, and also some more money for, uh, actually the oversight and enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act, which is another thing that we've been talking about. So some of those priorities from the administration, we saw some of that trickle into the, the overall ag spending bill that was passed out of the House Appropriations Committee. 
So, Jackie, we talk about these appropriations bills and these votes and these fundings moving out of committee, and we talk about them like like they matter, but it's been quite a while since we've actually had an appropriation bill follow regular order, become a part of the budget, and get passed. What's the likelihood that, that these bills, this package that was voted out by the House Ag Committee, actually makes it to a full vote? Uh, zero. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, this is this is just the House when you have the House is Democrat controlled and there's not a small margin here. Um, you know, this will this will pass the House floor. Um, and, and actually, you know, that's sometime doesn't even always happen. They don't always even get the individual bills to come up on for individual votes. Um, the Senate is where you've got a, a you know, a much harder road of passage. And so, obviously different priorities when you're trying to get 60 votes in the Senate compared to just a straight majority vote in the House. Uh, you know, this is for the, this is for the fiscal 2023 funding year, which would start October 1st. So it would need to be passed by September 30th. So they would need to get something, uh, you know, and sometimes this work does help establish what you would have put into a continuing resolution. Sometimes a continuing resolution is just a straight uh, continuation of the previous year's funding levels. Or I would expect because this is an election year and there's a lot of thoughts that the House will flip, that they would not want to do a longer term extension, that they would try to do a couple month extension. So something that when the new Congress comes in, in 2023 that they would be able to allow their input into that spending process because right now the republicans are really kind of shut out on the house side of where money should be spent i mean yes there is bipartisan there is work together there are some amendments that are coming up that have bipartisan support but overall i would say the 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 thrust of the focus is from the democrat priorities well, and those Democrat priorities have been shifting here over the weekend. Jackie, we saw last week the big decision from the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade. We had made a lot of progress, it sounds like, on Capitol Hill, getting these ag bills mush pushed forward and out of committee. Now with that Roe decision, in your mind, is there any way we see substantive ag policy make its way to a vote before the election? You know, I think it was even before that. I mean, we were already entering into the summer. I mean, we already, even without that huge political um, divisiveness that's now re-entered into what was already a very divisive situation going on. Um, I, you know, I it's just another, it's just another log in the fire, right? I mean, it's just one more thing to keep things burning. Um, and so I don't necessarily know if this was a, 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 very, a big sway one way or the other. I mean, I think it's it's obviously going to impact the ability to have good policy. And, you know, if you've heard me talk before, I like policy, not politics. And so that's, that's one of those situations where politics gets involved and you do have a lot more positioning and not as much policy discussion that really is constructive going forward. And so, but it's election year. I mean, we are really entering into a, a lot of um, people are trying to make their viewpoints known on some key issues that they think will either help them or hurt someone else in the upcoming elections this fall. Yeah, and that is what is going to drive the conversation here for the next several months. Jackie, so let's put politics on the back burner. Let's talk policy. And I want to switch gears to Proposition 12. We've discussed that quite a bit on the show. It is waiting its hearing for the Supreme Court. And two weeks ago, you told us about how 12 Democratic senators, including Debbie Stabenow, head of the Senate Ag Committee, had written a letter encouraging the White House to come out against Prop 12. I understand last week the White House made a decision where'd they fall. All right, so I just want to clarify, you actually, the 12 senators, including Devin Stamina, had asked the Solicitor General to support Prop 12, not, um, so they actually were wanting the Biden administration to say that California's standards for uh, animal production standards were were necessary and that the Biden administration should support that a lot uh, this and that would actually go against what the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation are arguing in this case it's now before the Supreme Court uh, the solicitor general actually last week came out in favor of the pork producers and the farm bureau and uh, ag industries and so huge win from the sense that the Biden administration actually really took word for word a lot of the arguments 
in their case about how important this is to make sure that the the state's rights are protected, that one state, in this instance, California, is not able to regulate and dictate what is done in other states. And a lot of that's because they are wanting inspectors to visit other states. And so there's 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 concerns there. And so the Solicitor General filed this brief in support of MPPC, of the Farm Bureau's Federation, and several other, um, you know, a lot of other Chamber of Commerce, um, even, you know, different ag groups, um, lots of, lots of people filed what we call Friends of the Court amicus briefs in support of MPPC in the Farm Bureau, which is, which is good news and hopefully is, is continued support for being able to overturn what a lot of folks are really concerned about if Proposition 12 is upheld in front of the Supreme Court. Yes, I was a little surprised to see the White House come out so vociferously in opposition to Proposition 12. And Jackie, I'm glad you got that corrected. Yes, they they came out in opposition to Prop 12. Did that surprise you as well to see that uh, that briefing come out? You know, I, yes, especially after seeing that those senators, including Deborah Stabenow, had actually asked for the Biden administration to, to, to go against what the ag industry was asking for. And so, you know, I, that is, that was actually a sigh of relief. You know, I see so many things, especially, you know, as I said, politics, policy, there's a lot of things that farmers are getting hit with. And I felt like last week, they got just one little win of finally finally having someone in their corner, and hopefully this will go in the producer's favor. Well, and because another loss came last week, or at least a, a potential loss, with the green lighting of potential tariffs on fertilizers. Jackie, what did the Commerce decision do last week? So, you know, this is just another uh, kind of a fact-finding hunt, and the, the Department of Commerce was issued a final determination that the urea ammonium nitrate fertilizer exported to the U.S. was actually subsidized and sold at less than normal value. So they were basically just saying, okay, is what's going on fair? And they found that it was not. And this is this came after CF Industries filed a petition with the International Trade Commission in late 2021. Uh, and CF was actually asking that tariffs be placed on UN, UAN liquid fertilizer imported from Russia and Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, and so obviously we all know what's been going on with fertilizer prices. We know that there's uh, maybe things that are not always as fair, um, but this this actually kind of sets up the stage that that the commerce says, well, things are Russia is dumping things at less than fair value, um, and so they they are giving permission now. Whether they will actually do that, you know, that decision could be another couple of months. Uh, the final stage, and this is expected later this summer when the ITC makes a final ruling. You know, a few weeks ago there was a hearing where national core growers, uh, even different senators and representatives, testified at this at this hearing to to make known the impact that if we don't see uh, if we do have tariffs on UAN, farmers could actually start to really reduce usage of that really key nutrient that they need. And 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 that's when we start to see lower yields. And that's that's not good. If we've got a, these tariffs on there, uh, that that's just going to be one more added layer of cost on top of what's already been a very high excruciating bill for a lot of farmers when they get that that each this this spring. It certainly is. And we'll be watching for more on the Commerce Department as to what those tariffs might look like as we get deeper into the summer. In the meantime, Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor at Farm Progress. Thanks for joining us today. So great talking with you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and, if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. 
But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Get the coolest savings on propane during the warmest months with the Summerfill program from FS. The FS Propane Summerfill program offers customers the opportunity to fill their propane tanks during the summer when demand is less and prices are typically lower. From periodic propane system inspections to convenient payment options, you'll appreciate what FS dedicated propane professionals can do for you. Contact your local FS member cooperative today or visit fspropane.com. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, folks, as a lot of you are no doubt aware, energy prices are still very, very high. Gasoline prices, diesel prices, well, not at record levels. We haven't set a gasoline price record since June 16th. We haven't set a diesel record since June 19th, but prices are still very, very elevated. That's on top of natural gas prices being high and crude oil broadly being high, which matters not just for our transportation fuels, but also for plastics and for crop inputs globally. Energy remains a huge topic of concern, particularly in this inflationary environment, and energy is sort of taking center stage this week. There was a big gathering happening over in Europe. The Group of Seven Nations are having their meeting in Switzerland this week, and these are, it's a political forum, I should say. It's a place for these countries' leaders to gather and discuss the issues that are important to them and how they could act potentially as a group to address these issues. The seven countries that are involved are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And then they have an eighth member, which is just, quote, the EU as a non-enumerated member. So these leaders are all meeting this week, and one of the major topics under discussion is setting a price cap for crude oil that comes from Russia. This is a very interesting discussion that's been developing Effectively, these nations have looked out and they've said, look, we have put phenomenal sanctions on Russia. We've paid a lot higher prices for our energy as we have kept Russian energy locked into that country. But Russian energy hasn't been locked into that country. They have been getting it sold. They've been selling a lot to China, to India, to other places around the world. And they're continuing to move a lot of gas by pipeline into Europe. So the G7 leaders are looking around and they're saying, all right, we need to make sure that Russia's not getting uh, more money from its sale of oil. So they're trying to put together a mechanism that would cap the price that Russia receives for its oil. They don't have a mechanism for this yet. They say discussions are currently underway. They're also trying to figure out what that cap would be. Some folks have suggested not paying Russia any more than $30 a barrel. And they estimate that would cover roughly the Russians' cost of production to produce this oil. They'd break even then selling it onto the international marketplace. And this price cap would be enforced using secondary measures like U.S. Treasury sanctions. Basically what the government or what this G7 agreement would say, at least in this rough blueprint, is that if anybody insures, transports, you know, facilitates the sale of Russian oil above this benchmark, that group would be punished. So if you insure a Russian oil tanker chock full of crude that they're selling to India for 100 bucks a barrel, you as the insurance company are only going to be able to get reinsurance for that oil valued at $30 a barrel. And so the idea being then you're going to limit your risk, going to limit how much of this Russian oil could come out. This is under discussion this week, as I have mentioned. I don't know how this is going to play out. This would be the first time, I believe, in modern economic history that we have used a, a secondary enforcement measure to try and set a price limit. Um, doesn't sound like it's quite there yet, but they are going to continue to develop it. And that matters, of course, because a lot of investors are watching the markets right now and they're watching energy prices as a key determination as for whether or not a recession is in the cards. And so producers, or should say investors, have been moving money around. And what JP Morgan found out is that a lot of these large scale investors are just taking their money out of the system entirely and parking it in cash. Last week, one of their analysts at JP Morgan reported that of investable categories, whether you're looking at equities, bonds, or cash, as of right now, 40% of traders' total assets are locked in cash. That is one of the highest levels we have seen since really immediately following the lockdowns of coronavirus back in 2020. And it is considerably above, just about five points above the rate at which folks, investors were holding cash heading in to this coronavirus pandemic. So the thought is, if all of these investors are sitting on cash, we talked about this last week with Jim McCormick on the program, all those investors need is a compelling narrative and they can pile that cash right back into the asset class that looks the most attractive. I think there is still a lot of folks who believe that commodities could be the beneficiary of that cash that is sitting on the sidelines. We heard from John Baranek earlier in the show today. Drought is a concern this year. The ongoing dryness, the ongoing physical tightness in commodity supplies could 
could keep us, I think, front of mind for investors as they get ready to redeploy that cash into the markets as things take shape. And of course, later on today from the USDA, we will get this week's crop conditions report ratings, the places where we are seeing that drought intensify, namely East Central Illinois, parts of, of uh, Indiana, parts of Northwest Iowa. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the corn and soybean condition ratings in those states when that gets reported today at 2 p.m. And finally, folks, before we let you go, we have talked on this program a lot. We've talked in agriculture a lot about carbon programs. And we continue to see farmers working their way and dipping their toes into those programs to see how they work. And I think the importance for farmers to do that is continuing to grow. We saw another carbon tax announced last week, this one again in Europe, where they are taking sort of the, the fastest moves against uh, carbon pollution as they see it. This is a, a really rather high carbon tax that Denmark just put in place. They agreed on Friday that this is the highest corporate carbon tax in Europe, and it's basically going to be about $160 per ton of carbon produced outside of the EU emissions trading system. Um, and then it will be another 375 crown fee, which would be roughly $40 fee on top of that. So all in, we're going to be talking about a $200 tax for carbon in Denmark. Folks, when we hear numbers like this, remember this is putting into price of or putting in place a value for the price of carbon as these carbon credit markets and programs develop in this country, a lot of those folks will be looking at what the value of carbon is in Europe as they try to set the value for those carbon credits here in this country. So $200 carbon credit, that's $200 per ton of carbon. That could work out well into some producers' bottom lines. Folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA for you tomorrow. We'll be tackling a lot of the issues that agriculture is facing. And in the meantime, stay safe out there and stay cool on this cool Monday to start the week. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org.